0: in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to
1: fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier. Welcome to the latest episode of Rising Tide, the ocean podcast. This is David Helvarg, and my co-host is still, luckily, Vicky Nichols Goldstein. Hello, everyone. Today we're honored to be talking with Margaret Linen, director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego, one of the world's leading centers for the study of the ocean, climate, biology, and our changing environment since its founding in 1903. Dr. has previously worked at the National Science Foundation as US envoy on ocean science, as president of the American Geophysical Union, and has won many awards and honors. At Scripps for the last 10 years, She's overseen more than a quarter-billion-dollar research budget, a fleet of seagoing vessels, hundreds of faculty and graduate students studying on a beautiful waterfront campus in Aloia, California. Scripps even owns its own aquarium. So, Margaret, before we get into what you and Scripps do, maybe you can tell us how and when you first connected with the ocean.
0: Well, thanks, David, and uh, it's wonderful to join you. I look forward to talking with you. And yes, uh, your little introduction is sort of a great introduction to why I love my job and it's a fabulous place. So uh, I am not like uh, a lot of the applicants for uh, for school here who start out their letters by saying, you know, I walked on the ocean uh, on the the beach as a child and always wanted to study the ocean. Uh, I grew up in Illinois. And uh, I never saw the ocean until I was about 20 years old. And uh, so that wasn't the direction that I was going. Uh, I got interested, well, early on, I wanted to be a lawyer. uh, But then uh, once I went to undergraduate school, I discovered geology. And I was taking geology, and I uh, majored in geology and was interested in that. And then uh, along the way, uh, I was in undergraduate school at the time of the great uh, revolution in our understanding of uh, the origin of the oceans and the movement of continents and continental drift, seafloor spreading, and everything that was going on. So it completely revolutionized geology. And then in addition to that, uh, I studied sediments. And it seemed to me that as long as people were talking about things that were deposited near shore, like river deltas and beaches and near shore coastal environments or coral reefs that sort of make their own shore, that they had great models and they could talk about what happened in the past with some confidence. But then they would get to talking about the ocean and it seemed like it was really kind of vague Uh, and of course that was because we we you know the the real origin of oceanography was post-world war ii uh, so we didn't know that much about the origin and uh evolution of the ocean so i thought i would go to an oceanographic institution and learn about the ocean And then I'd come back and I'd have all those answers for geology. Uh, But I uh, went off to Oregon State for uh, graduate school and fell in love with oceanography and uh, never went back.
1: I think when people think of Scripps Oceanographic, they pretty much think of the ocean and fish and um, salt water. But you're actually today you're overseeing three major areas. It says Biology. Earth and oceans and atmosphere, which seems to cover pretty much everything. Um,
2: And climate. (laughs) We must go up as well.
1: How how do they all fit together? What's what's these sort of big buckets you have there?
0: Well, our name is oceanography, but we're oceans, atmosphere, earth science, geophysics, climate. And I think that uh, it started because, of course, the The atmosphere and the ocean are closely related, and the atmosphere drives uh, the waves, the ocean drives precipitation cycles, uh, and then uh, with time we learned what a role climate or the ocean plays in climate. But back in the post-war era, when people were studying geology, uh, geophysics, and using geophysics not only for the solid earth itself, but also the geophysics of uh, of the circulation of the ocean, of waves and so forth, led us into that. And then in 1952, uh, former director Roger Revelle uh, published a very important paper uh, with his colleague Seuss on using radiochemistry, uh, C14, to be able to uh, look at the age of, of uh, water in the ocean. And from that and the circulation and understanding how quickly the ocean circulates, uh, they were also able to show that uh, the ocean was only taking up uh, about 25 to 30% of the CO2 that we were generating. And before that, everybody assumed the ocean was taking up almost all of it. And that the CO2 in the atmosphere was fairly constant. And so they showed this from uh, studying the ocean water. Then he went out and hired a a spectacular analytical chemist, Charles David Keeling, who uh, was able to measure the very small changes in CO2 in the atmosphere. And he started doing that off the end of Scripps Pier uh, in the mid-50s. And by 1957, had an established uh, record. He could show the seasonal variation in CO2 due to, you know, growing plants on land, which uh, take up CO2 and give it off during the winter. And he could also see uh, small variations from year to year. So in 1957, he started uh, the Mauna Loa uh, Observatory. And that's the one that has generated... uh, The the curve that is most commonly used to show CO2 uh, in the atmosphere, known as the Keeling Curve after Charles David Keeling, that led us into climate.
1: And and very interesting. I first interviewed Roger Revelle in 1985, and he first clued me into this great story about industrially driven climate change. Uh, Scripps is in charge of or monitoring the Keeling Curve. Which has gone from 280 parts of carbon dioxide per million in the atmosphere pre-industrial to I think we're now about to hit 420. And the the whole ocean climate connection now has become very real, that that it's changing the physical nature of the ocean, its its temperature, its chemistry, its color and circulation. <laughs> and I guess scripps is has to be by its definition um, on the cutting edge of. of both figuring out what's happening and looking at solutions. And what what are some of those, uh, both re- ongoing research and possible applied science?
0: Right. Well, we do a lot of, uh, so I'll, I'll talk about the ones that are related to climate change first. Uh, we do a lot of work with uh, coastal environments because we're right here on the coast. Coast of Southern California. Uh, So we look at sea level rise, and we also look at coastal bluff erosion. And one of the things that we emphasize when we talk to people about solutions for sea level rise is that people tend to think about it in terms of, you know, how many millimeters is sea level rising each year? And that's what we have to worry about. But it's not. It's actually the combination of that inundation, getting more water in the ocean, with the storm surge, the tides, the storm surge, and what we call the run-up. That's how much the waves run up the coast uh, uh, onto the sh- onto the beach. And even a small change in the sea level results in a much larger uh, incursion of water on land. So the run-up is uh, is much larger than that that small you know millimeters or centimeters of sea level rise. So that means that you it, you know for each area it's a local issue. What what's the beach profile like? Uh, also, what kind of waves do you get and when? Uh, so here on the Pacific Rim many times we're getting waves that have come here all the way from the Western Pacific. And so they were generated by big storms out there. They come all the way across the ocean. The, the big waves are not related to the wind right offshore that they've come across the whole ocean. So it's putting together that whole picture of what, what uh, the sea level rise piece is. And then on bluff erosion, Uh, The question is, how much is precipitation and, you know, getting the the top of the bluff water saturated and then uh, failing versus undercutting? And one of our researchers, Adam Young, uh, has been a real pioneer in this, and he's been able to demonstrate that those two are about equal. So we have to worry both about sea level rise, undermining the coast, but also changes in precipitation and the and bluffs. And one other thing that I think will be interesting to your listeners is that they've probably heard of El Nino and that El Nino is an interannual feature of the climate and it affects different parts of the world differently. In California, uh, it usually results in rainy winters for us. But one of the other things uh, about El Nino is that. It tends to pile water up against California, and during an El Nino, Southern California has an increase of about ten centimeters of sea level every El Nino, and then uh, and then it, it goes back during non El Nino times. So that allows us to do uh, to exploit this feature to be able to tell people. What sea level rise is going to be like, and and what we're going to face uh, in a few years, and that is also that also comes from understanding the physics of the ocean, its circulation, how El Nino affects it, and then using that as a tool for prediction.
2: I was looking at the uh, the NOAA forecast, and being in Colorado with an El Nino, it's looking like we might get a lot of snow this year. So it, it really is interesting with the different. Uh, locations and geographies.
1: Okay, a quick break here. I'm sure you recognize my voice. I'm your co-host David Helvarg. I'm also executive director of Blue Frontier that sponsors Rising Tide. If you enjoy our talks with the watermen and women making a difference for our ocean world, you might also want to check out our other work at www.bluefront.org. There you'll find links to many other projects including our Blue Movement directory of over 1200 ocean activist organizations many near you. Again, check us out at bluefront.org. And if you enjoy Rising High the Ocean podcast, spread the word to friends and families from sea to shining sea. And now back to the show.
0: So first, there are the changes that the ocean will cause to climate on land, like changes in precipitation. Uh, there are also the changes that are going on in the ocean. So Uh, As David uh, alluded to in the introduction, the ocean is changing in terms of its chemistry. Uh, It's becoming more acidic, and areas of the ocean are also decreasing in oxygen. We call it deoxygenation. Uh, So those two are affecting marine life. And so in order to take stock, we also have to be able to understand, measure that deoxygenation uh, acidification, and and be able to predict what the impact is going to be, be able to measure what the impact is going to be. Coral reefs, it's easier to see because coral undergo bleaching. Uh, they also uh, undergo sort of a degradation uh, associated with uh, acidification. But out in the, the big deep ocean, it's much harder to see what's happening. Uh, And we need the kinds of observations that help us understand not just the fish that we like to eat and what's happening with them, but the whole ecosystem and even the microscopic organisms that are responsible for the basic productivity of the ocean. And of course, in 2021, we began the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. And that effort has also brought together even more oceanographic uh, institutions and marine labs from around the world. And it's also connected them with uh, with other groups that are important, with the business community that works on the ocean or that uses the ocean with various economics and social science uh, groups who are really the experts in how people will uh, respond to efforts to remove pollution from the ocean, get rid of plastics, take care of coral reefs, and so forth. So this is a major effort, and there are just literally thousands and thousands of scientists from and social scientists from around the world that are engaged in work associated with the, the UN decade. More locally, we're asked all the time, about how is um, climate change going to affect water availability in California? How is it going to affect heat, uh, drought, etc.? Uh, so there's a lot of advising uh, on the science.
2: You've been the director for 10 years, and you're the first woman director. And just listening to you and doing research more about the um, the recent history and all of the partnerships and the The amazing international work that you're doing. I'm wondering about your leadership style and being the first woman. How do you think that has contributed to the growth and the success um, at Scripps during your time as the director?
0: I don't know whether it has contributed to the growth uh, or if I would say success directly. I think that when I started out in my career at a time when there were very few women in oceanography and it was very unusual for women to go to sea. And those were challenging times. I think that what, what it has given me is a feeling for you know how difficult it is to do challenging oceanography in general and therefore how we have to focus on eliminating barriers for people, whether they're women, whether they're people of color, uh, whether they are people with disabilities, uh, whether they're, whether they're students who come. Uh, we're, we're in here in Southern California, we have an, a large undergraduate program and about 35% of our undergraduates are Latinx. And many of these students are first generation students in college. Uh, many of them are expected to commute uh, to college from some other part of San Diego County, uh, and to help out with expenses, they may have worked the entire time that they were a uh, in high school, and everybody's assuming they'll continue to bring in money when they're in college, and you know having those other pressures on you to be able to to take care of your family uh, to. Be a wage earner uh, to not have anybody in the family that you can go to and say, you know, was it this hard for you? Am I, you know, is this because I'm not smart enough to be here? You know, I should really give up. Uh, and they don't have somebody to say, oh no, you, you know, everybody struggles and it's hard for everybody. Uh, it's just you know, it's meant to challenge you and to give you to give you big challenges. If you have no one to say that to you, it's so easy to say, "Oh, it's me."
1: So I have a friend at NOAA who says, when she was a graduate student at Scripps in the seventies, they told her uh, to stay on the deck of the research vessel because, you know, women were bad luck below decks. So, um, so things things have changed. But people uh, and, told- and
0: I had I had the opposite problem. They want they wanted me off the deck. M- one of my very first cruises, uh, I was out in the Atlantic, and Kathy Sullivan, the astronaut, the former administrator of NOAA, uh, was also a graduate student on the same cruise. And we were responsible for, we had come on board to me to take samples of sediments, Kathy to take samples of rocks. And the first time we went out when we came on station and we were going to go out to do this, the bosun, who is the person in charge of everything that goes over the side drew a line uh, on the the fantail, the the deck, the back deck, just a couple feet behind the door that went from the inside of the ship onto the deck. And he said, "No women aft of this line. Uh, you you're a distraction, and somebody could get hurt."
1: Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> we
0: weren't allowed to deploy the gear that we'd come to deploy.
1: Wow. So we've had some forms of progress today. You're in charge of a academic fleet that includes the Roger Revelle and uh, the Sally Ride. and And where do they deploy? what's What's your fleet doing uh, on any given day?
0: We also have a, a coastal research vessel, the Sprawl. And most people think that academic uh, oceanographic research vessels just take the people from their own institution out and they they go out and they come back to, to port and they go out and they come back to port. Actually, it's we're operated as a fleet nationally and all of the academic oceanographic research vessels are part of a system that's called the University National Oceanographic Laboratory System and the laboratories are the ships. And what they do, they perform a remarkable service for us. They coordinate the use of the ships so that the ships operate in the most effective manner, which is to go out from one port to another port to another port and make a, a big loop. I was here for four years before I saw the Revelle dock at Scripps. All of that time, it was out at sea. It even did repairs on dry docks in other countries uh, because that was the most efficient way to run it. So the marvelous thing is, number one, They save everybody a lot of fuel, so we're not just going in and out from home port. Number two, they make these vessels available to anyone in the country, and that's, you know, it's terrific. And so a lot of times, well, I was, uh, uh, you know, I did part of my career at University of Rhode Island, although I was on the ship from time to time. I never sailed on the, the Rhode Island ship. I did my work in the Pacific, so most of the time I was on Scripps ships when I was uh, actively doing research.
1: What are some of the specific programs? I mean, Scripps is covering the poles, it's covering, you know, uh, biology and, and physical oceanography. What are some of the more interesting studies going on there now that people might not know about?
0: Well, uh, you're right, we we study the poles, and one of the interesting studies is about the, the way that glaciers in Antarctica work. And many of those glaciers are what we call grounded. The glacier goes beyond the edge of the land and goes out a bit over the ocean. And the bottom of the glacier is actually stuck on the seafloor uh, underneath the ice. And that sticking is acts as a resistance for the glacier, it still moves, but it doesn't move as fast as it would if it wasn't stuck there. And so one of the big issues uh, that we're interested in is understanding the nature of that and what's going to happen as sea level rises and exerts more pressure to uh, to lift up the ice as the ocean warms and therefore warmer water Uh, is going under there and, and has more potential to melt ice. And then we're learning that, you remember I said that there were waves that come across the Pacific. Some of our geophysicists have been studying waves that come from the Northern Hemisphere and go all the way down to the Southern Ocean. And they put seismometers in the ice shelf, in the Ross ice shelf, and they could see that when these big trains of storm waves came it actually makes the ice go up and down mm-hmm. and so is also we think affecting the fracturing of the ice and we've been looking at that as well and all of those pieces are pieces that tell us about the stability of the glacial ice in Antarctica because if we start melting Antarctic ice much more prominently faster or catastrophically if you know if we have a a piece of an ice shelf that fails because of all of this motion and and thinning of the ice then that's all going to accelerate sea level rise.
1: Wow so so I gotta ask Scripps is you got this beautiful campus on La Jolla Cove You've got your own research pier where I've gone body surfing despite some aggressive sea lions. How's your campus going to deal with, uh, or how's it going to do in rising seas?
0: So we're all right for quite a while. And remember, I said that a lot was local. And right offshore, we have uh, a deep sea canyon, the La Jolla Canyon. And it sort of comes from the ocean out toward land. And if I'm Scripps, the canyon actually takes a turn offshore and so it actually funnels a lot of the wave energy away from scripts and so you know we're substantially above sea level it's not like uh, it was when i was on the east coast of florida but also we're protected uh, from some of the impacts of those big storms by the the submarine topography
2: and with that I would like to thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast and sharing so much information and inspiring guidance for our our upcoming new scientists. So thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. And thank you, Vicki and David, for giving me the chance to talk to you. It was a pleasure.
2: Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helborg and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla, Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbar. You can find Rising Tide The Ocean Podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
0: Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true,
1: it's the Blue Frontier Off in the salty ocean,
0: off to the Blue Frontier
2: Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky. There you are, good boy, Sparky.